0: A listener note. The safety information discussed in this podcast are our views based on our personal first-hand experiences. Each safety situation presents unique risks, and the solutions discussed in this podcast should not take the place of thorough risk assessments or evaluations based on your specific circumstances. Thank you. Welcome to Safe, Efficient, Profitable, a worker safety podcast. Where we break down real problems from real situations and discuss realistic solutions. And here's your host, owner of Allen Safety LLC and CHMM, Joe Allen.
1: Episode six on the podcast. We're excited about this. We've got six of them done. You never think about that when you do the first one, so we've got six. Uh, This one is about pre-emergency readiness hazmat. We talked about a little bit on number five about some different ideas of what you should be thinking about if you decide you want to build a hazmat team and get some people involved. And we even had our first guest. Yes, we, we must be a real podcast now. So anyway, our podcast Had a guest last time. We actually was able to bring that guest back, and her name is Jen Allen. Hello, Jen.
0: Hey, everybody. It's a Jen Takeover, and I am super excited to be here. Anyway, back to Joe here. All right. What we're talking about is...
1: <laughs> is uh,
0: for, everybody that didn't, for everybody that missed last week's episode, Joe and I are married. He's on the road this week. That's why we're doing it this way. But yes, so here we are. We train and work together and, and do all that good stuff. So here I am.
1: Back to Joe's episode. We're talking about the, the great things about pre-emergency readiness. Now, we also talked about last week that there is an article on our website that Jen wrote it talks about so many subjects. If you want some information, it's alan-safety. Uh, there's also the the podcast that explained a little bit in episode five. Now, episode six is giving you just a little more detail. And the way we're doing these these episodes, we have a series like this, is we try to give you a basis of what you need to look at first and think about and then we give you the next part of the process or puzzle, and then we try to give you a closeout so that you can take a few episodes and kind of see how the picture moves. So we'll start with uh, the second one. Jen, we'll let you go for the next part here, and over to you, Jen.
0: Yeah, so last week we kind of talked a little bit about um, things have progressed in the in the realm of leak responses and hazmat, and we now have additional options available to us. It used to be we could have a team, or we could have you know level A, or we could have nothing. Um, we've kind of moved moved past that in the last several years, it's become a little bit more mainstream um, to, to do some different alternatives to that. And one of the alternatives Joe and I developed back in 2014 as a response to that need was um, training up to level C response. So for locations that didn't feel comfortable with the equipment investment, or it just, you know, they have other support, either from city hazmat teams that can respond or a close regional team, um, that's an option that we have been training more and more folks on since that time. And it's been working really, really well. It's also been a great response for when we have those leak re- leaks that are, you know, kind of classified as nuisance. But should they really be? Yes, they're over evacuation levels. Yes, they require my operators to put on. Um, some kind of APR, some kind of PPE on their face, yes, they're shutting down something that's leaking that shouldn't be so... A lot of times the government's response to that is, well, if it's leaking and it shouldn't be, you're putting on PPE to deal with this. And it's, you know, we're not doing some kind of a maintenance task. Just to be clear, like we've we've got a problem and, you know, it's it's over the parts per million where we would need to have some kind of PPE on our face because it's above evacuation levels for whatever that chemical could be that's, that's technically a hazmat response according to some of the different state OSHAs and some of the different ways that that's been regulated. And so, um, kind of the Joe and I kind of labeled as stage one, two, and three. So stage two would be kind of your response in level C or your APR response and then level three being the level a response. So, um, you know, there's some pretty significant differences beyond just the the difference in PPE between a stage two or an APR response or a level C response and a level A response with the suits that are fully encapsulating in your SCBAs. And one of those main differences is going to be the size of your location and how big your team should be. Um, Another thing that we'd want to talk about is who should get training and those kind of go hand in hand. So Joe, I'm going to turn over to you and you can kind of go through based on the size of a team or based on the size of a location or a facility, how big should their team be and who should be on it?
1: When I did Hazmat years and years ago, it was always, you know, everybody has to have everything from level A's to whatever they're going to manage. And I'm not saying this right or wrong, even today, you can always have a level A team and that's fine. Um, But as Jen talked about, there's been, you know, a a team in, in the middle of a city Uh, the local emergency wants to be involved. So maybe the local hazmat team uh, wants to be involved. And if they want to be involved, uh, let's get them involved. Let's work with them. So even where you're at and who can be involved could change the size of your team. What we usually look at is if locations are going to have a team that does not do level A, and I mean by it could be the size of the plant or where they're at, maybe they have 15 or 17 people in the team. Now, i I think it's just fine to have level a teams and you don't ever go to level a I mean our big push for allen safety is no matter what size leak you have and no matter what amount of train you have, the idea is to keep the risk low and keep the exposure low so Part of having the amount of people you have, 15 or 17 or something like that for a smaller location, it's also about the vacations and and rotating people out during the day if they get hot or cold or if they're doing different tasks. And then you have a large location or a more remote location. It could be a smaller place, but if it's an hour and a half, I mean, some places we go to are an hour and a half away from everything. So if they're an hour and a half away from the next resource, then they may have to have a, a full level A just to be able to manage the process or if they're a larger location, they may want full level A because of the scope of what they're going to do. But each business and gets to decide what level and how they want to manage it. And then each location gets to decide how many people they want to be involved. But it's usually like 15 to 17 for a small location and around 40 or so for a larger uh, amount for having full level A's.
0: Yeah, Joe, I think it really goes back to kind of what we talked about last episode in terms of that insurance policy, right? So, you know, what kind of support and and how, how large is the gap in terms of how quickly are you going to get that support versus, you know, if we train folks and just have the equipment here, you know, the idea in that would be uh, each is a stair step. So my level A teams would also have that APR response available to them. And, you know, be trained in the level A's should they actually need it and things progress that bad, or they have a chemical mixture that's not able to be managed with just the APR response. And I think that that's probably another thing that we'd want to look at is, what are you actually responding to? What are the IDLH levels of that? And if you're responding to an atmosphere that could potentially be oxygen deficient, obviously that APR response isn't going to help you with an oxygen deficient atmosphere. So those are all things to also consider when you're trying to determine what hazmat level of training is right for your facility as well. Um, and then who should get training? If I've got a, a location, do I just open the training up to everybody or who is, you know, who is the location going to ask to be on the team? I
1: think that, you know, you have to really evaluate what your scope is going to be and what the intent is. Uh, there is one or two people that really know your system, whatever chemical it is, whether it be totes or barrels or some kind of piping or refrigeration or any, or PSM or any kind of system You've got a few people that are usually called some kind of operator, They're the people who work with the systems. Yes, they would normally be part of this process, but you also need to have your safety. And so my location I have HR and we have medical and nursing, if we have it, or we have people in the ERT team the, that are like fir- first aid CPR people or responders. And I like having, you know, different managers from different shifts on the teams, especially senior managers too, because they're going to be helping on the off shifts, help evacuate and coordinate. So in my world, if, if if I can, I try to have a little bit of shift coverage from all, all three shifts in a 24-hour period. And then if I have some weekend crews a little different, I add some of them. I'm going to have some operators, some medical. And what I want is I want to have a, a team that knows how they're going to manage the business side of it as we're managing the chemical side because it's all going to relate.
0: Well, and I think it also goes back to timelines a little bit. Um, when you talked about the off-shift coverage, I think that Time becomes a really big factor. So, you know, the amount of people you're training on the off shift, I think is probably going to be directly related to, you know, what are my drive times for my team to get back? If I call them in the middle of the night, will they show up? Are they, you know, under a, a... you know, a contract where they, I can't call them to show up on an off shift or something. I mean, what are my parameters as a manager that I'm having to work within? And then that's going to start answering the questions of, well, how many people do I need trained? So something else to also consider is if I only have one or two folks trained for hazmat on my off shifts, I'm still waiting for the cavalry to come. So what are those two folks doing? Um, while we're waiting, and the system continues to dump, where are they at? What can they do? What can they do? Um, how long is it taking the cavalry to get there? How long are people driving in from? Um, you know, what does my support system look like? For some of my rural areas, it could take an hour for some of the managers to get back to the facility. So, in terms of, you know, I've got to have maybe an operator to shut a certain piece of equipment down. Well, maybe I look at getting a third shift operator trained, or maybe I start uh, growing the size of my off shift trained team just to make sure that I've got coverage and we can at least get the ball rolling and do something while we're waiting for everybody else
1: to show up. Yeah. We've also seen that you know a lot of places decide to hire contractors and, and there's pros and cons where you're going to do with contractors. But if you hire a contractor company in today's world, and we say, um, send an operator out, for example, whatever business you have and help us out because we don't have an operator for third shift or second shift or weekends. We've seen some of those contracts where they'll say the contractor has up to four hours to respond. So you can have all your team selected and say, okay, we're going to, for these three contractors are going to be filling in for our operator roles, but you've got to now calculate a four hour window that was not even you wouldn't have thought about five or six years ago. So as the world keeps changing and as, as the as the environment keeps changing, I think you have to go back and reevaluate your team. So not just the first time when you do it, but yearly go back and reevaluate: Are we where we need to be, and, and do we have the right coverage to meet the goals that we're trying to meet?
0: Yeah, and you know if you've got that length of time between when the you know the leak starts and when the contractor is able to, to get on site, you know, how much, how much have you leaked and and how much of the systems even left? I know for some of my small locations, if this was a pretty sizable leak and it was, you know, a you know, mid pressure, high pressure, they dump the whole system. They wouldn't have anything left. It would, it would not be necessary from an emergency response standpoint to shut anything off because everything would be gone. So that's something that you're definitely going to want to take a look at too. As well as, you know, from a manager standpoint, what kind of training are we providing managers on all of the different shifts to to know what to do? And so some of the different avenues for getting some of that information and training across to them is incident command and incident manager. Joe, can you kind of talk about the differences between just those two terms and you know where the term incident command and incident manager come from?
1: Um, I look at more of the incident manager as the emergency action plan, all the expectations that supervisor or superintendent is supposed to do. So uh, we're going to have a bomb threat. We're going to have evacuation. We're going to have a fire. We have a chemical leak. We're going to have some kind of event where somebody's had some medical event. And our expectation, whether we mean to or not, our expectation is that manager, that superintendent is going to manage that event over a certain amount of time. Now, When it becomes a chemical-related event, they will walk up and manage that for the first few minutes, but then they'll say, this is more training than I have, and that that will switch over to what we call more of an instant commander. Now, I have seen in other industries or other groups around the country that they'll use the word instant command for everything. And and that, that's their choice, how they use that. Uh, we've always broken it down where if you're a superintendent and you're on third shift and you're managing all these different emergencies, we train an in instant manager. And then whenever you become a chemical event, if you're instant command trained, you can go ahead and start managing that. If you're not, then you can stop at that time, turn it over to someone else train and let them manage that. So there's we do... Uh, very distinctly break off two different people or two different roles that that could be during a live event.
0: Well, and I think from a liability and, uh, Litigation standpoint. That's an important part to note. So, when you're looking at an incident commander from the standpoint of I am an IC, I'm responding to a chemical event. There is a series of training that's required to be designated as an incident commander that's responding or, you know, providing support and guidance during a chemical event. Um, that is not the same as I went through emergency response training or emergency action plan training, you know, within the program the facility has that covers fires and bomb threats and all that kind of um, subject matter. You're looking specifically very detailed at what is the risks that my team would be going into if they are an entrant What are the risks that my team's going into if they are backup? Um, What are the medical vitals and physical requirements that they're going to have to get from a medical clearance standpoint? And then, you know, from a risk to the facility, they're considering things, you know, like personal property, life, um, threat to the community. They're evaluating all of those types of scenarios as opposed to the incident manager where Joe kind of talked about that's going to be more of the, you know, workplace violence, um, you know, caught in some of those types of situations that they're going to be managing. Um, So different skill sets, different training. And so we try and do our best to separate that out just so that each individual supervisor and manager is very clear on what their role is and what they've been trained to be able to manage so we don't put them in a weird place as well.
1: I also think all shifts should have somebody trained in the incident management. And then that way, no matter what shift or what happens, they can manage that event until more resources arrive. And then some of those people, especially on third shifts at my locations, I don't think it hurts at all to have them go all the way through and be a command trained. Because they could be the only manager there while it becomes a chemical leak. So I like using the resources based on the time frames in front of me and what's what we really expect people to do and what we expect them to handle and give them training on the information they're going to be managing.
0: Well, historically, you know, it it seems for our company, or at least for you and I, Joe, that a lot of our events and our leaks and our emergencies seem to happen on off shifts. So, and a lot of times if we are working with a facility and the folks have not had the training and incident command to manage a chemical leak or incident manager to be able to manage um, a medical emergency or dignity protocols for someone on the floor, we end up sometimes doing more harm and worsening the situation than we're doing good. And so again, it kind of puts the location in a weird spot in terms of, did we cause more harm in some way? And, and we're also exposing that manager to a little bit of, of, you know, liability as well, that they were the ones personally managing the situation because no one else was a manager there, but we didn't provide the training to actually be able to do that. So you kind of get into a little bit weird world where we don't want to talk about that, but once the event's over and we've gotten, you know, whoever, whatever needs to be taken care of, taken care of in the, the treatment that they would need to receive or the leak has been shut down. Then months later on the back end, that's when some of this starts to come to light. And we want to make sure that we don't put any of our managers or supervisors in that position where we could expose them personally to any litigation.
1: Yes. The the goal is whoever the person is performing that task should have the training on how to do that task properly. So there's different ways every organization can break that down. There's different avenues they can look at. So for pre-emergency readiness, Um, episode five was trying to get, you you know, look at the picture and figure out what you want to do or not do. Episode six now is about talking more about training and team sizes and how you're going to manage it. And then, um, episode seven, we will talk a little bit more about the final stage of it. So we would like to say thank you for Jen again. Thank you, Jen.
0: Thank you, everybody. Glad to be here.
1: And, uh, don't forget, we've, uh, we appreciate you being on these. We know it takes time out of your day and we always hope to give you something that's worth your time. And again, thank you. And Jen, do you have anything else to say before I close out?
0: No, I think that's everything. Um, have a great week, everybody. Thanks again.
1: All right. Talk to y'all later.
0: Thank you for listening to safe, efficient, profitable, a worker safety podcast. If you like what you heard here, please take a moment to write us a quick review like, subscribe, and share our podcast so that others can find us. For questions or to request topics that you'd like to hear on our next show, please visit us at wwwallen safetycom Thank you. Safety first, stay safe.